BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with The China Project. Subscribe to Access from The China Project to get, well, access, access to not only our great newsletter, The Daily Dispatch, but to all of the original writing on our website at thechinaproject.com. We've got reported stories, essays, and editorials, great explainers and trackers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region to Beijing's ambitious plans to shift the Chinese economy onto a post-carbon footing. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Military civil fusion, or Junminruhe, is a phrase that's been around for decades, but has only really gained broader attention in the last, say, six or seven years. MCF, as it's commonly abbreviated, arrived in American discourse on China policy on the heels of a lot of concern and commotion over Made in China 2025. You remember that industrial policy that was announced in 2015? Well, that gave a lot of ammunition to those people who were arguing for broader and stricter export controls of advanced technologies, uh, efforts to keep them out of Chinese hands. After all, they said, the Chinese are explicitly calling for the civilian sector to be harnessed to the PLA. So suddenly the scope of what counted as problematic dual-use technology was greatly widened. Voices who were calling for a small-yard, high-fence approach were it seemed at the time anyway, drowned out by a chorus of increasingly disinhibited cries for freezing China's technological advance. Revelations of China's widespread use of advanced surveillance technologies in Xinjiang added, of course, to this after 2018. And all of this culminated, I think, in the, in the restrictions announced in October of last year and the Biden administration's apparently successful efforts to corral the Dutch, the Japanese, the South Koreans, uh, and others in enforcing bans on equipment that's necessary to manufacture advanced semiconductors. So today on Seneca, we are going to talk all about military-civil fusion and how perceptions of that policy among key analysts really informed American responses. Joining me to discuss this topic is Elsa Kanya, a PhD candidate in Harvard University's Department of Government. Her research focuses on China's military strategy defense innovation, emerging technologies, a bunch of other stuff. Elsa is also an adjunct senior fellow with the Technology and National Security Program at the Center for a New American Security, CNAS. In early 2021, Elsa and co-author Laurent Lasky published an excellent policy brief titled Myths and Realities of China's Military-Civil Fusion Strategy, or CNAS. And in that brief, they lay out exactly what military-civil fusion is and, perhaps more importantly, what it isn't. By my lights, anyway, it is a model of clear-eyed but level-headed thinking, and uh, I hope that our policymakers will all read, if they haven't already read that brief. Elsa joins us from Honolulu, Hawaii. Elsa, Kanya, welcome at last to Seneca. Thank you so much, Kaiser. I'm happy to be joining the show. So Elsa, as anything that purports to tackle myths and replace them with realities, uh, your policy brief kind of posits 
a conventional wisdom version of military civil fusion that U.S. pundits and policymakers have have taken aboard or imbibed. Uh, and, and you break that down into four main myths. Could you lay those out succinctly, and then we'll look at each of them and uh, you know see why it is that you label the myths and what, in fact, we should more correctly understand. And let's start with this first myth, which is the idea that that military civil fusion kind of originates with Xi Jinping. Uh, you devote a section of the paper to the history of the concept, which goes back, in fact, much earlier. Could you give us a, a, a quick version of that history? So I think, as is often the case, we sometimes give Xi too much credit for initiatives that predate him. And mm-hmm. to be sure, as with with most myths, there is a degree of reality insofar as this strategy and agenda has become much more prominent under his leadership, and he's really elevated its importance and the emphasis and resourcing. But there is a degree of continuity going back to the time of Deng Xiaoping or even even back to Mao Zedong with concepts of military civil unity and the importance of uh, the people supporting the military. So there is a degree of consistency and the emphasis on leveraging commercial resources to advance national defense, whether that's weapons development or mobilization. When we look at the range of efforts over time, predating but continuing and intensifying under Xi's leadership, to some extent, the elevation of this agenda to a national strategy could be regarded as a sign that prior efforts weren't delivering the anticipated results. Yeah, yeah. And when Xi takes charge of an initiative personally, there are reasons perhaps to believe there was seen to be a need for that uh, added emphasis and the added momentum that comes with uh, his personal priorities. So we've definitely recognized that military civil fusion, while newly important and newly relevant in many respects, uh, has a range of precursor programs. And the theme consistently has been how to ensure that Civilian industry and commercial enterprises across academia, across the startup ecosystem, are aligned with national defense objectives, and that the PLA also can leverage new and more innovative companies as opposed to only or primarily engaging with traditional state-owned defense enterprises that are not known to be quite so innovative. Yeah, yeah. So your key point isn't so much that, hey, we need to get the history correct to understand the timeline. I mean, that doesn't really matter so much. What's really important is that we we should think about the fact that MCF needed to be so elevated under C is indicative of maybe that it it hadn't been so successful previously. And so you you do talk about what, you know, barriers have, have frustrated the attempts of earlier leaders to get private enterprises and especially, you know, Chinese high tech companies to cooperate with the mostly state-owned companies that, you know, comprise China's defense industry. So what are those barriers? What what has stopped them from succeeding prior to Xi? So there are some common challenges in any military bureaucracy when it comes to having flexible approaches to procurement and acquisitions and building sustainable partnerships with commercial enterprises. And the, the U.S. military has encountered these, these challenges over time and initiatives like the Defense Innovation Unit that has sought to build bridges with Silicon Valley and have a mechanism for prototyping as one response to that. And so, too, in the mm-hmm. PLA, we've mm-hmm. seen the Agile Innovation Defense Unit, AIDU, which uh, appears to be inspired by DIU and is taking a similar similar approach. Uh, initially established in Shenzhen, it's had a team of younger, more tech-savvy uh, personnel who are trying to work with Chinese startups on projects with a rapid response, whether that is COVID-related capabilities to enhance pandemic response or drone swarming and autonomy. So we've seen these barriers over time, to some extent inherent in bureaucracy, and the PLA's effort to overcome them, including against the backdrop of some of these military reforms. Some, some of the issues as well come to questions of policies and legal frameworks that have been mm-hmm. uneven or inconsistent, including in the context of protections on 
intellectual property and I think really the the reality that despite decades of talk about civil military integration, military civil fusion was seen as necessary to have that sort of deeper partnership beyond beyond some of the efforts at the margins and pilot projects or programs or efforts that were more symbolic relative to how do you reshape the whole ecosystem? And I think that is what is ambitious and far-reaching about military solo fusion as a concept, taking a systemic approach and trying to really reshape how how China approaches military innovation and defense technology development by really placing commercial enterprises more at the heart of that endeavor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That makes sense. Uh, so, so the second myth, the idea that that military civil fusion has conferred on China some kind of an insurmountable advantage or, or a gigantic advantage. Uh, let, let's talk about the reality there. Uh, we've already talked a little bit about, you know, how Xi's very need to revive this program or this 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 policy initiative says that, you know, it was in need of reviving, that, you know, it hadn't been so successful. And we've talked about, you know, maybe some of the reasons why it's been so hard to actually implement. But But since we're talking about you know, national advantage, that is an inherently comparative idea, right? So I, I, I want to ask, I mean, don't we also do it? I mean, don't we do it actually better? I mean, isn't China's effort in, in large part inspired by and, and done in conscious imitation of America's success in civil military fusion? You know, programs like DARPA and DIU or, or InQtel, which is, you know, the the CIA's in-house VC. So I agree that there are efforts of military civil fusion that are clearly emulating or inspired by some of the strengths of the U.S. defense innovation ecosystem. Yet at the same time, I believe we should avoid complacency when it comes to American perceived advantages I think we've we've seen over time the debate evolve from believing the U.S. is relatively unchallenged in its military technical superiority to anxiety that China is inherently advantaged or on track to, su- to surpass us on all fronts. Mm-hmm. As mm-hmm. usual, the truth is somewhere in the middle in the sense that there are great strengths in the U.S. system, but are, there also are ways in which certain certain initiatives have perhaps not been as far-reaching or impactful as we'd need to really achieve effects at scale and implementing and in think are so some of the difficulties in reforming procurement and acquisitions again a a shared challenge to some extent for the US and Chinese militaries really speaks to the fact that in a world where the focus of innovation is shifting from militaries or governments to increasingly commercial enterprises that are more agile or creative on some fronts, the capacity to build and leverage partnerships is really critical. And we have seen the PLA look to U.S. efforts. Certainly DARPA gets a lot of attention and any any DARPA program is closely scrutinized in the Chinese military enterprises. They are concerned about its success and also looking for inspiration. And at the same time, we've seen quite direct imitation of recent initiatives like the Defense Innovation Unit, which sought to create a capacity to prototype and allow for more flexible partnerships with companies to circumvent some of the more cumbersome dimensions of uh, the current acquisition systems. What's the Chinese version called? Oh, the Agile Innovation Defense Unit, in fact. So (laughs) quite a a similar nomenclature there and a similar emphasis when it comes to having a small team. Uh, This effort was initially established in Shenzhen, so clearly a center of innovation, uh, especially on drones. And they've had short-term projects focused on faster reaction when it comes to delivering national defense scientific and technological capabilities, uh, including in the context of COVID response or or swarming in autonomy. So there definitely are, are aspects where we see these these parallels or these attempts at emulation, but 
where I think there is the potential for military civil fusion to deliver a long-term advantage is in the systemic character and far-reaching dimensions of military civil fusion, where this is not just a so-called national strategy where we have the top-level design as it's described and the emphasis from Xi Jinping at the central level. We've seen efforts to expand and implement military civil fusion across every province and down to the local level with uh, not just the Central Military Civil Fusion Development Commission, but uh, an apparatus that has commissions and organizations dedicated to its perpetuation down to the very local level. And although there may be certain inefficiencies or unwieldiness in attempting to make a thousand flowers bloom, so to speak, in military civil fusion, this does bring a scope and scale to these efforts that uh, could be consequential, especially yeah. when we're thinking, for instance, about the potential for national defense mobilization and the system we saw initially illustrated during COVID, COVID yeah. response and the concern about uh, what would China's capacity to mobilize for a potential invasion of Taiwan or another worst case scenario look like when there is this system and structure to direct resources from commercial purposes to military production. So what I like so much about this is that, you know, it, it, it tries to right size this problem. You know, you do talk about the potential and we certainly you certainly do warn us away from complacency. At the same time though, you know, we we've seen this happen before where some initiative that's spelled out in China as a we want to do this is read in America as we've already done this. And uh, I mean, I, I think of things like the social credit system where, you know, we somehow imagine that this fully formed system whereby, you know, individuals are all assigned some kind of singular score based on their loyalty and their behavior and their online, you know, activities. Uh, and of course, that's nonsense. Um I, I worry that some of the same dynamics are here at work in our understanding of military civil fusion. I think your paper does a really good job of of taking out some of the the hype. At the same time, though, like I said, you know, you're you're very clear eyed about this, and you don't dismiss the challenges. Um, so maybe you could enumerate what some of the 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 areas are where we've seen success already, or you know, we're very close to seeing breakthroughs uh, resulting from military civil fusion. And maybe how concerning those things. I mean, you've, you've named some of them just in passing, like drone swarming technology and things like that. But what are some of the areas? And I know that in your testimony for the U.S.-China Economic Security and Review Commission, in your testimony for that, uh, you gave a more full-fledged list. But maybe give us some idea of where some of these areas of, of pressing concern are. So military civil fusion has especially concentrated on new domains and emerging technologies and explicitly delineated priorities like space, cyberspace, maritime technologies, robotics, biotechnology, and artificial intelligence, among others. The idea animating these priorities is that in these new frontiers, so to speak, China has a chance to be a first mover and mm. to achieve an advantage through dedicating investments and achieving new advancements perhaps beyond what is currently understood to be possible. And whereas the U.S. military has an advantage accrued in certain more traditional capabilities when it comes to emerging capabilities, the playing field is leveler. And there is a chance for China not to be a fast follower uh, trying to close the gap, but to really become a leader and pioneer in, in these domains or to leverage investments looking to long-term potential. So space is a great example of where we've seen a growing number of Chinese commercial c companies uh, getting into the game and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. everything from efforts to develop a, uh, to, to expand constellations in low Earth orbit. Like Starlink. Along yeah. the lines of, yes, a response to Starlink and clearly the PLA is both uh, envious of Starlink and seeking to develop capabilities to disrupt or subvert it, uh, seeing uh, efforts to develop more of a national network and expanded capabilities in LEO, and al also a number of companies advertising capabilities like AI-enabled satellites, 
Yeah. Or satellite communications that could support hypersonics. So space is certainly a domain where I think we'll continue to see a lot, a lot of dynamism and progression. Uh, arguably, military civil fusion relates to one of the most consequential crises in U.S.-China relations of late, the infamous balloon incident, sure. where, where stratospheric airship capabilities were developed by a certain scientist, Wu Zhe, of, of Eagle's Man, that has since become a rather infamous and potentially this is a great example of some of the downsides of this very systemic whole of nation expansive approach to military civil fusion where you have where there are some some benefits but also risks where you have scientists who are very entrepreneurial and looking to work with the PLA and advertising capabilities where there may not be full oversight or visibility at the central level yeah or they're not quite ready for prime time. <laughs> We're not quite ready for prime time, indeed. But uh, that's uh, perhaps a a crisis we would not have seen if military civil fusion had not become such a central feature and the accompanying incentives. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So when we, when we let's get back to the, the the list of the myths, um, because you know we we'd gone through two of them now. The third myth, though, is is a really interesting one, uh, which is that you know China has imposed, in your words here a legal obligation on Chinese companies to participate in MCF. So we heard this constantly, and you know, I think we still hear it in various forms. So let me just ask, isn't there evidence of that? I mean, isn't there this, this you know, amendment to the party constitution that was made in you know, the 19th Party Congress in, in what, 2017? I mean, aren't there things like the national security law and the cybersecurity law and the national intelligence law? I mean, these things are often quoted by advocates of, of restrictions on technology exports or even of outbound, you know, investment restrictions, which is, you know, something that they're talking about right now, or or in banning Chinese technologies or technology companies in the United States, everything from Huawei to TikTok. Aren't there things on the books that would compel companies to, to cooperate? So clearly there are laws that are relevant and require that uh, companies support national security and clearly the party state has capacity, if necessary, to compel companies to share sensitive technologies. And we've mm-hmm. seen the increased intrusion of uh, the CCP into technology companies in the past couple of years. So clearly the potential is there. But what is striking is the fact that there is no law specifically on military civil fusion at this point. Mm. So there is no legal framework or clear series of policies around forced technology transfer per se. And despite the fact that laws about military civil fusion development or promotion were previously introduced uh, as early as 2012 and more recently in 2018, and these initiatives didn't quite make it to be introduced based perhaps on some of the legal complexities that come into play. Hmm. But when we look at how military civil fusion as a whole is playing out today, beyond this narrative of the party notionally compelling companies at gunpoint to uh, to, to play, uh, what we see much more is a series of incentives and benefits and efforts to make the PLM more of an attractive partner to Chinese companies and whether it's some of the challenges and competitions organized through different services of the PLA or elements of the Central Military Commission, again, trying to imitate DARPA and uh, competitions focused on unmanned systems across multiple domains or applications of artificial intelligence. Uh, we we see a lot of efforts to make military civil fusion a lucrative endeavor for the PLA and and as, as we were discussing, that can perhaps come with some unintended consequences when mm. uh, companies like Eagles Men uh, get, get in the game and are be, being very entrepreneurial and m- multiple companies have incentives to market themselves and brand themselves as military civil fusion supporting enterprises. Yeah. So in, in the conversation in, in the States here, it seems to be not about in, incentives and inducements that, that the Party's offering or the PLA is offering, but rather about you know the coercive elements, the the sticks rather than the carrots. How should we be understanding this? So I think the sticks are 
these sticks are sizable if need be, but uh, compelling transfer of technologies isn't really a regularized or sustainable mechanism so far as we've seen. And I think the when we turn our focus to incentives, that does allow for more precise mapping of some of the policies and looking more closely at some of the companies that have been very actively engaging with the PLA as opposed to more generalized suspicion that any Chinese technology company is at risk. And certainly I agree that the risk or potential is there, and I don't think the party would hesitate to uh, co-opt or access technologies if that were necessary. But in terms of the more routine functioning of this ecosystem, I do think the incentives and policies and building of partnerships over time is is more consequential. Interesting, interesting. So the fourth myth, and it really relates to to this, and and I think we've kind of touched on this already, but I'm going to read it as you've you've written it, you and Laurent. Nearly every Chinese enterprise is already actively involved in military civil fusion. As a result. It is all but inevitable that any collaboration between American and Chinese researchers is likely to end up directly or indirectly supporting military modernization. This one, yeah, I mean, it seems to be a a very important one that has implications for things beyond, I I think, of of this recent legislation in in Congress right now, where they they do not want to renew this decades-old provision to, to collaborate in, in in scientific research between China and the United States, right? I mean, and the argument I think that's being you know floated from the hawkish side uh, is that it, it'll all immediately go to the PLA. Anything that we do in collaboration with Chinese scientists immediately benefits the the Chinese military. I think the question is ultimately how do we balance the risks and benefits? And the risks are very real, and clearly, especially for dual use technologies. In, including including domains like deep sea research, where there's a, definitely a nexus to to national defense interests or artificial intelligence, there there is the potential for the PLA to benefit. But in in reality, although the I'm sure the PLA would love if every single Chinese company were were at its door and were actively collaborating. What was striking is that at least initially, Chinese technology companies that were globally present or had global ambitions were less visibly or openly working with the PLA, perhaps because of concern about foreign markets. So Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, and Huawei seen some glancing indications, and I don't doubt that they've supported the Chinese military on some fronts, but they were they were not openly declaring their fealty to this, uh, and they weren't seemingly as actively engaged as some of these smaller startups and defense enterprises were. And I think there might have been a window of opportunity when we could have exploited divergences of incentives where mm-hmm. some mm-hmm. Chinese companies that did have a desire to remain in global markets and sustain global partnerships uh, could have been could have been incentivized to be more transparent and in order to retain that access. I think that ship has sailed to some extent at this yeah. point, unfortunately, but... When there is this generalized concern that any Chinese company could be working with a PLA, well, there is a degree of truth in that uh, that does perhaps give the PLA some some advantage when it comes to bringing bringing new stakeholders into the fold. And I think we've seen we've seen different estimates over time of just how many Chinese companies uh, actually have the required the required licenses to work with the PLA and are actively participating in that ecosystem. Uh, se- several thousand and uh, about 2% yeah, as yeah. of 2019, based on one estimate I saw. And the, the data is incomplete. And anecdotally, we definitely see indications that the number of companies supporting national defense in some way, shape, or form has grown over time. But I uh, think it is not perhaps as extensive or comprehensive as the PLA would wish or as American policymakers would fear. And that doesn't mean that the risk or potential isn't there, but it does mean we can look at, we can 
build out the data set and try to understand which companies are present the most risks relative to those that are not actively or currently integrated into this overall system. When we are trying to differentiate uh, and be more targeted in some of our policy responses. Yeah, it, it strikes me just now that, that what's true for these companies, I mean, I think of companies like Chihu360, not a company I particularly respect, but you know, it delisted so that it could go back and, and now it's quite integrated into, it. it is actually in sort of one of the poster children for MCF now, right? It, because it, it works on cybersecurity issues for the PLA. But, Absolutely. Um, yeah, but I, I think, you know, what's true for companies is also true for individual researchers and scientists, where when we create a sort of a, an environment here that's hostile to them, or we don't, you know, open up doors of opportunity for them to pursue careers and, and lives in the United States, what are we doing but driving them in, into the arms of, you know, of, of, of the Chinese, where, you know, as we've said, their research could be turned to to benefit the Chinese military, right? Yes. It just feels like a, an own goal. And the irony is that many of the talent plans that have provoked a lot of anxiety were an attempt to reverse the brain drain that the CCP was concerned was occurring when many top students and scientists wanted to come to the United States and stay. And a lot of the the range of talent plans trying to recruit scientists back were attempting to reverse that uh, that balance more in more in Beijing's favor and when we when we've responded sometimes with more restrictions or punitive approaches against the backdrop of greater hostility to immigration i think we are undermining some of our own advantages and contributing to prc national objectives when it comes to retaining that talent recruiting it back into into China's national ecosystem. And yeah, couldn't agree with you more. So Chinese policymakers, though, they are well aware of the way that policies like this are landing on American ears, right? I mean, they know how we've we've really worked ourselves up into a, a frenzy over things like Made in China 2025 and now over this policy of military-civil fusion. Um, you know, we've seen them, though, when they, in the case of Made in China 2025, um, mute discussion of that and actually, you know, just significantly reduced mentions of it in any official uh, pronouncements or in in, uh, in media reports or anything like that, um, presumably because they understood that it really rankled in in Washington. I mean, at the time, I guess Liu He was, you know, still trying to, to get the phase one trade deal signed. Um, but has there been any similar awareness of or muting of MCF in China? Yes and no. So to be sure, Chinese policymakers are keenly aware of the reaction military civil fusion has produced and its growing infamy. And as a result, we have seen less explicit discussion of it in official policies. So for instance, the 14th five-year plan didn't emphasize military-civil fusion directly, but did talk about uh, military-civil uh, scientific collaboration and sharing of resources. So discussed many of the features of military-civil fusion without using the exact phrase. And <laughs> Clever. <laughs> so, uh, yes, we'll, we'll never know. <laughs> Clearly, it's a very sophisticated obfuscation there, but I think it's clear that this military-civil fusion isn't going anywhere. It to be fair, be, we've done the same thing with the China Initiative, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I've we've definitely seen we, we we've seen restrictions on access to information and a closing down of accessibility of data generally on many fronts. Yeah. But at the same time, one of the one of the analytic advantages of studying military civil fusion comes from the reality that. For this strategy to be successful requires information being available as well. And the PLA's capacity to build partnerships with academia and companies requires making some information accessible and sharing and advertising some of the different initiatives in play. So I think military civil fusion can't be wholly hidden, but at the, at the same time, we have seen sort of Le it's certainly less 
less in the prime time than it was uh, sort of circa 2015, 17, 18. We've seen fewer public mentions. We've also seen some discussion of military civil unity, Twanzia, uh, as sort of unity as opposed to fusion as an animating concept. But I think that is a slightly, that is a related but distinctive concept and one that also comes into play, for instance, everything from the need for military civil fusion for the total war on, on COVID or thinking about the military civil unity concept actually dating back to some of Mao's pronouncements during the Chinese Civil War sure. as China faces a more hostile international environment and the and the risks of conflict against the backdrop of current competition. So I think we can expect to see military civil fusion uh, remain publicly discussed w- w- where necessary, but it's certainly something that uh, China's po- Chinese policymakers are cognizant of the sensitivities associated with. Mm-hmm. So you published that paper in January 2021. It was just before the Biden administration took <laughs> office. Uh, you've had some time now to see how this concept of military civil fusion has figured into this administration's thinking, into the Biden administration's thinking about China, about technology. Has it diminished at all or has it taken on maybe even more urgency in light of you know the major technological advances that we've seen just in recent years, especially in AI and, and areas like quantum computing, uh, rail guns and hypersonics, things like that. What are your thoughts? Does MCF have the same place of prominence in the Biden administration's thinking that it did in the Trump administration's? There has been continuity and change. Mm I think some of the policy directions that started during the Trump administration have continued. There have been efforts to make some of these measures more targeted and to continue refining the instruments we're using, including uh, hopefully to avoid collateral damage to American innovation capability and to ensure that the policies are are sustainable and defensible. So I, think, I, I hope that uh, our, our report has been of some utility in advancing the debate on military civil fusion and refining public understanding. I think... Uh, it is inherently challenging to make some of these export controls and technology restrictions as targeted as would be the platonic ideal, but we we have seen progress, and I think uh, it's going to continue to be challenging to strike that balance and walk that line when it comes to recognizing the the risks and the real ways in which Chinese campaigns of industrial espionage targeting dual-use technologies remain an urgent threat and mm-hmm. academic research collaborations and commercial partnerships can be exploited to that end relative to uh, trying to re- retain the openness and where feasible collaboration that is so critical to global scientific progress and something that the U.S. has benefited from disproportionately in our history. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. You were, you were good enough to send me your congressional testimony, your testimony to the USCC. Uh, I must, must say that, you know, reading that, um, it was given, just for context, in April of this year, in 2023, it, it's very different in tone. I, I dare say it's quite different in substance to from what you'd written just two years earlier. So, I mean, most notably, you, you don't go after myths. You don't go after, you know, areas where uh, the American elite understanding of, of MCF is maybe in error. Um, What has changed in your thinking? Was it this venue or the additional research that you'd done in the intervening couple of years? Or or had MCF in China really made substantial gains that are are reflected maybe in in the the fact that you're you're much less interested now in in myth-busting or deflating hype? What's changed? So I think my... My thinking on military civil fusion hasn't changed that much in actuality, I'd say, on some level. I think the reports in question had different objectives. I think for the initial report on myths and realities, we were concerned about trying to inform the general public conversation at a time Mm -hmm. when discussion of military civil fusion was reaching a fever pitch, and I continue to be concerned about 
misperceptions or misrepresentations. But when, but uh, in in the testimony, I was really trying to concentrate on looking at some of the some of the challenges and some of the advancements we've seen in the years since military fusion was elevated under Xi and uh, this new era of military fusion, so to speak, when a lot of these n- new policies and initiatives have been playing out over time. And I continue to believe that it is inherently challenging to come up with a definitive answer to the question of how how well exactly is military fusion working? Because we're looking yeah. at a massive ecosystem and successes and failures can be juxtaposed and aren't mutually exclusive. There can be inefficiencies tolerated in the interest of effectiveness. There can be uh, ways in which military fusion is not as, is not quite as successful as American policymakers may fear, but uh, nonetheless, given the expanse of what is being undertaken, even uh, smaller successes in a couple of domains or technologies could have significant ramifications. And we we have seen the continued expansion and deepening of these efforts. I think some of the, many of the observations we made in 2021 are still Still very valid that uh, in that military solar fusion encompasses a smaller proportion of the overall Chinese technology ecosystem, and I think we do need to focus on the companies and technologies where it is being most actively implemented as we're trying to direct resources and manage the risks. But that doesn't mean that we won't see troubling or consequential developments where uh, some of these self-proclaimed proclaimed champions of military civil fusion are accelerating their efforts. And we've mm-hmm. seen, I mean, unmanned systems or drones, uh, the consequence of which the PLA is clearly observed from the war in Ukraine uh, yeah. is definitely, definitely an area where the number of Chinese companies developing drones, whether that's U- UUVs, USVs, UAVs, or UGVs, really across every domain and every and supporting every service of the PLA. Uh, that, I think, speaks to some of the impact and importance of China's efforts to develop a smart ocean system and apparatus for maritime domain awareness, uh, the development of deep sea technologies and capabilities. I think it is, a, I think definitely I, I try to remain open in my research to my thinking evolving over time, but I think there's also a degree to which all of this can be true. Military civil fusion can be overhyped, but can also be it can also be highly concerning. And there can be some of these uh, aspects of the system that don't live up to the platonic ideal that Xi Jinping may espouse. But that doesn't mean there won't be won't be important capabilities emerging or the potential in the long term for a mobilization that could be impactful or shift the balance in a conflict scenario as well. So I, I for one, take great comfort in knowing that one of this country's leading authorities on military civil fusion in China, you, uh, you know, you exhibit such epistemic modesty about it, you know, and flexibility in your thinking and, you know, an instinct to try to right size this and to try to take the hype out, but also not to downplay, you know, the very real problems. And so, uh, hats off to you. It was an excellent, excellent report, and and I encourage everyone to read your congressional testimony as well. Uh, Elsa, thanks so much for taking the time. Uh, I just want to leave a, a couple of parting thoughts of my own, and then let's move on to recommendations. But I mean, I was just thinking about you know how our official language now. Maybe you could give me your 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 ideas about this as well. Our official language now, you know, following the Europeans, is going from decoupling to de-risking. Uh, and I maybe I'm too optimistic in thinking so, but I hope that implicit in this is that you know we're going to be more targeted in the in the technologies or the industries that we want to cordon off from China. Uh, maybe that will mean a less expansive, less maximalist view of military civil fusion. Um, so that's that's one idea, and and, and the other that it maybe is more of a worry is that. You know, the United States has in recent years exhibited this tendency to try to 
compete with China by out Chinaing China by doing what they do. So I mean, I think immediately, of course, of all sorts of manifestations of industrial policy, which you know used to be kind of at least officially regarded as anathema uh, by by the United States, but now you know we've kind of fully embraced industrial policy. Um, but you know, are we going to mirror China on this as well? Are we going to see? I mean, I wonder. Uh, you know, a more kind of robust and aggressive effort to you know to make our technology companies play ball with the Pentagon. I, I kind of worry about that. Uh, <laughs> I don't. What do you think? What do you think? <laughs> I I share your concerns that there is a degree to which American policymakers can espouse a degree of envy or desire to emulate what they see as features of China's system, even if their understanding of these policies may not be wholly consistent with the reality of how these initiatives <laughs> are being implemented, to uh, frame it as diplomatically as I can there. I think we don't want to try to out-China China. I think there are aspects of whether we call it industrial strategy or supporting science and technology development from more of a long-term perspective, where there is an American tradition of having more robust government investment in research and development and providing resourcing for basic research and facilitating partnerships between the military and innovative commercial enterprises. I mean, there's a reason why the PLA talks about American military civil fusion and envies aspects of our system and its historical successes as well. So I definitely I sh share a general concern that we have to recognize what are the unique strengths of our own system and not be reacting out of anxiety or concerns that China is has the systemic superiority that Xi Jinping has sometimes claimed their their uh, their system possesses, but th I think in the long term, trying to walk that line and recognize the some of the so, some of the challenges or contradictions here, where it is it is accurate to say that the U.S. and China are intensively intensely competing in artificial intelligence or biotechnology at the same time, it is accurate to say that uh, American and Chinese researchers have extensively collaborated in these fields in ways that have advanced the disciplines and really been critical to progress and success in both countries. So I think whether it's the debates around the science and technology agreement and whether there are ways to sustain that scientific and research collaboration with greater oversight and greater risk mitigation or thinking about the long-term trajectory of U.S.-China relations, I think there are reasons for concern, but also hopefully we can rise to this challenge, so to speak, by implementing policies and pursuing directions that we should be regardless of what China is doing, as opposed to being reactive in our responses. Amen. Amen. Elsa, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. It has been such a pleasure. Let's move on now to recommendations. First, a very quick reminder that the Seneca podcast is part of the China Project. And if you like the work that we're doing with Seneca and the other shows in the network, then the best thing that you can do to help us is to subscribe to Access from the China Project. You get access to this show on Mondays, East Coast time in the U.S. And of course, to our daily dispatch newsletter. Also, no paywall on the many great stories that we run on the website. So pitch in, help us out and become a member. All right, on to recommendations. Looking forward to hearing what you've got. So I read a lot of science fiction, especially of late, and I do find the escapism uh, important and necessary sometimes. And I also find it a fascinating way to get different perspectives on on the world we live in. And yeah. I found Anne Leckie's uh, new novel, Translation State, to be a really wonderful and fascinating reading, including in terms of how how she approaches some really core questions about what it means to be human, about identity, about uh, what who is a person and how power plays out when that is that is defined and arbitrated. And there are many ways in which science fiction can be a mirror for the world we live in, including 
international relations of a contention and has some of these questions of identity and humanity and misunderstanding among cultures play out in in different scenarios so i definitely would would recommend the book and uh i'll 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 spare you a more detailed uh (laughs) exposition of reading recommendations but uh Anything Anne Lucky has written, including her ancillary justice series, uh, re- recently was reading uh, and rereading more of Octavia Butler's work. Uh, there's cer- certainly no shortage of great books out there, and I j- always just wish I had more time to read. Fantastic. Yeah, th- that sounds great. Thank you so much for that recommendation. I really like that you still, in your busy life, find time to, to, to read for leisure. I, I am insistent on doing that. I'll you know, really deliberately carve out time to read just for pleasure. Um, and what, when I do that, I often like to enjoy a cup of, of genmai cha, you know, in, in Japanese, nomi cha in, in, in Chinese, uh, green tea with a roasted sticky rice, uh, the just amazing stuff. I, I, I love the flavor of that, like you wouldn't believe. So I, I realized that I had all this nice, you know, green tea people had given me over the years and I wanted to figure out how I could, you know, roast glutinous rice uh, for that. And what seems to me is to work right now so far is, is soaking a cup of nomi, which you can buy in any Asian supermarket, you know, soak it for a few hours, maybe four or five hours and then drain it and then toast it over medium heat on like a big flat pan, um, you know, tossing it frequently until it takes on a, you gotta use a spatula, you know, at first it's wet still, but, uh, once it's dried, you kind of break it up and, 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 and toss it, and it takes on a kind of nutty, toasty, f- you know, oh, it's, it's, it's insane. Uh, you got to almost burn it. You know, get it real. The, the flavor then will suddenly pop, and then once, once you've got it at that level where it's almost burnt, uh, yeah, just a teaspoon of it in a, in a, a cup of, of green tea, and my God, it's great. Anyway, if, if any tasty. of you out there— yeah, yeah. <laughs> if any of you out there have a better uh, way to make this, because I, I looked online, I didn't really find much. Uh, if anyone has a better way to do this, um, let me know. I'd, I'd I'd love to hear how to get. I mean, the more intense roast flavor, like you get in the commercial again, my cha. Anyway, Elsa, thank you once again uh, for taking the time. It's been such such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you, and likewise. The Seneca Podcast is powered by The China Project and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at com with or without Genmai Cha preparation recipes. Uh, just give us a rating uh, and a review on Apple Podcasts if you would rather do that, as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at the China Proj, and be sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.